I'm Maria Thea Harris or Velo Sews and you're listening to Sew Organised Style Podcast. Sew Organised Style Podcast acknowledges traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging. A big sponsor shout out goes to our two podcast friends and sponsors, the Australian Sewing Guild, who has been our Monday Daily Series regular, is now a sponsor of Sew Organised Style Podcast. Go to ozsew.org to check out the online workshops, sew-alongs, skills library and more. Our second sponsor is Tatiana's School of Couture as she launches it online. Go to her website to see her new online sewing classes and patterns. Welcome back to Socialist Tuesday on the daily series of Sew Organised Style podcast. As you know, on Socialist, there have been a few blog posts around masks and especially one about mass research that you really need to go and read. So today, Donna the researcher is here to talk about her study and her previous studies. So let's give a warm welcome to Donna. Hi, Donna. Hello, how are you? It's so good to talk to you. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. I'm really pleased that we could time this so that we could meet face-to-face, so to speak. Across the globe. Exactly. On Socialists, the reason I've brought you onto the podcast is because you're doing mask research, but you've done other research. And this is an, a blog post that is currently on Socialists that people, if you haven't read it, go and have a look at it. So Donna, do you want to give us the background to what it is you're doing? Sure. So the short answer is that I'm talking to people who are making face masks, face coverings at home in or as part of their own business, perhaps, in response to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And The journey that I took to doing this research is really roundabout. I'm actually a theologian, Mm -hmm. a Christian theologian. That's my training. So I don't really have any business doing this research, but I'll I'll tell you why I, I, I ended up here. You have researched in the past, right? Yes. So that's part of the story of how I ended up here. Even though this is not my primary training, I think I've developed some expertise and some experience that enables me to respond to this moment with this research. I became a knitter in 2006 and got really excited about it and wanted to somehow combine theology with knitting. And I couldn't think of any better way to do that than the only intersection I saw was this phenomenon of prayer shawl ministries. So this was a movement that started in Connecticut in late 1990s, like 1998, 1999. And it was these two women who sort of had this sort of feminist, divine feminine, divine embrace spirituality that they wanted to express through handcrafts. And they envisioned this idea of like making shawls in order to Mm -hmm. give away to people who were grieving or sick or even in celebration as kind of this tangible embrace. And unlike a Jewish prayer shawl, the idea here is the maker would pray while they made it. Oh, okay. Yeah. A shawl is something that embraces you. So then to do to create the shawl while praying, 
that's another level on top of that, isn't it? That's the idea, yes. So there's a sort of a comfort in giving these things away. They're just soft and warm. But then to imbue them with some kind of like, I'm giving you a tangible prayer. I'm asking you to feel God's embrace, however you want to like to say that. And again, for that original group, it was really the divine feminine, this idea of textiles and, and that notion of mothering and nurturing and all those things that associated with a feminine image of the divine. So that movement has become very widespread, but extremely decentralized in the U.S. and in a few other countries. And most of the groups are centered in churches. So I knew I could go and like talk to the people who did this in the churches, because it turns out there was no literature. There was nothing written about this mm. other than a couple of um, seminary papers, master's theses and stuff. No peer-reviewed literature. So I was going to have to learn how to generate my own data. Right. This is not something as a theologian I had ever been trained to do, collect or generate mm. knowledge. I was trained in just reading things and thinking about them and writing. That was my way of doing research. So I had to learn how to interview. And luckily, I teach in an interdisciplinary unit, and I have colleagues who are social scientists, oral historians, and we team teach a lot. So I get to, I get to learn along with the students. So I gathered as much of that expertise as I could, got some research approved, went and did that study in 2013. I went to a couple of sites around the country, and then I did phone interviews with people in other places in the U.S., ended up interviewing about 88 people, I think, and wrote a book about prayer shawl ministries and women's theological imagination. That's what it's called. So it was really about what kind of theology comes out of doing a tangible craft mm -hmm. for a spiritual purpose, right? Right. In the words of the people who did it. And this was going to the audience or going to the people rather than finding it in previous research paper because it's never been done before. Absolutely. So that's a huge ask on your part. It was original research, but there was no creating primary research, right? There was no other way to study this phenomenon. <laughs> and there was no other intersection of these two things that I could think of. So I was stuck. I had to go do it. Having done that, in 2017, when the women's marches were planned around the world, I was privy to this phenomenon of the pussy hat, the pink hat that was the symbol of the marches. And I had made a few and sent them off to be distributed to the marchers in Washington, D.C., sent one to my best friend who lives in Connecticut. And it was five days before Trump's inauguration, so just six days before the marches. And I suddenly realized that somebody needed to make sure to research the people who made those hats. And I wasn't sure anyone was going to think to do it because the hats were kind of invisible to the larger public until the march happened. That's right, yeah. There were a couple of newspaper articles the week of the inauguration that said, you're going to be seeing these hats. But other than that, there was not widespread knowledge that this was going to be a part of the marches. If you were a knitter, you knew about it. But I wasn't sure there were enough, were there knitters who were also researchers who were going to think the makers ought to be talked to? I was the only one I knew. It was quite a significant point in time, wasn't it? And it hadn't been done before. Absolutely. And there was an issue of timing so that I wasn't sure the people who made the hats, I knew where to find them. I knew what groups they gathered in. I was part of those groups too. 
But after the inauguration, after the marches, would they scatter? Would the groups disband? Would they be able to be found? So I wrestled with it and finally decided that even though there was no theological angle whatsoever in this research, I was still the one to do it because I had developed this experience in talking to women, mostly women, about their symbolically significant crisis fabric that they made to give away. <laughs> that's, how I, that's how the phrase I used to talk about it. So I did that research. I, I got it approved, and I, I spent that whole summer interviewing, surveying, and interviewing the pussy hat makers. I had 800 respondents to my survey around the world. I think I talked to people in a couple dozen countries, at least several in Australia. And I interviewed 200 people for that. So it was a massive, bigger project. The problem was, and, and I succeeded in making sure that data got preserved. I succeeded in that. I felt great about that. But I couldn't figure out what to do with it. I'm not a pussy hat expert. I just had that piece that, of the makers and what they were thinking. That's the only piece that I felt like I was the only, maybe the only one who would think to do. So I couldn't really write a book about pussy hats or whatever. I wrote a few conference papers. I wrote a book chapter or two, mostly in the theological realm, just taking a slice of the data that could be analyzed that way. But the bulk of it has sat without being used. And then when this came along, when we all started making masks, <laughs> yes. it took me a while again. It took me a few weeks, maybe four or five weeks. Hmm of doing it myself to realize, okay, it's not knitting, it's not yarn anymore, hmm. and it's not theology, but it is still crisis fabric that we're making in our homes, mostly to give away in a distributed fashion with the internet enabling us to organize and, it, you know, coordinating our actions, which is exactly what the pussy hats were as well. So, once again, I felt like, okay, my expertise that I've, the experience at least that I have developed over these two projects is being called out once again to make sure that the mask makers are heard in their very distributed, individual, isolated places that they are. So that's how I got from being a theologian and writing about Kierkegaard yeah. <laughs> in 2012 to 2020 doing these massive interviewing and surveying projects, mostly just to make sure that those stories are told to someone, that the thoughts that are in the maker's head, the meanings and the motivations and the significances that they are generating as they do this work get recorded. So that's where we are now. And it's really clear from what your experience is that you gathered the skills in your first project with the prayer shawls as to how to go about collecting, I suppose, in inverted commas, data from the people mm -hmm. who were doing it in a small number, at a small number. And now how many people have responded to your survey? Um, over 2,000 have responded to the survey. Over 1,000 have volunteered to be interviewed. And I have so far interviewed 241. I suspect, I hope, that by the time everyone has been given a chance to say yes or no to an interview, which I'm committed to doing, everyone get a chance to say yes or no, I'll have interviewed close to 500 people. That's a huge amount of work, but it's so significant too, because it's this point in time that you're recording how it's all unfolding and how the makers 
are going about it. Yeah, that's the motivation for sure. Okay, so when you put your story up on the socialist blog, how many people had already responded and then what happened after that? Yes, so the big thing that happened was I was at about, I was close to a thousand respondents to the survey when the socialists put the survey on their Instagram. And I got a huge flood of responses. It had kind of, um, it was, that was um, early August or late July, early August. And yeah. I got a huge flood of responses at that time and a huge flood of new volunteers to be interviewed. The blog came a couple of weeks after that and it, the blog itself didn't generate as many responses as just the Insta the Instagram was the big, the big flood all of a sudden. I, you know, maybe got 800 new respondents from that Instagram post. And from a research point of view, that's actually a really good result, isn't it? Yes. And the, the significant thing for me was the nature of trying to find people to put this opportunity in front of was very, it was very clustered geographically. So the way the mask making phenomenon worked is that mostly people did it in very lo local groups. There were some big national umbrella groups, but mostly people coordinated quite locally in a city, in a county, in a metropolitan area. And so if somebody would post in one of those groups, I'd get a bunch of people who lived in that area. So the map, if you mapped out my respondents, would have a lot of cross clusters in it. But because of that, there was a certain lack of broad diversity in geography, maybe in class, maybe in ethnicity. Age is a whole thing we'll have to talk about. We'll talk about age here. <laughs> That's and, another and, thing, yeah. It is. It's a really interesting thing, actually. But the thing about the socialist Instagram feed is it's international and it is non, it's not localized as intensely so that people could access it from wherever they are. And so I could get a one person in South Dakota yeah. who's not part of a, a group, but who follows that blog. And so it gives me a chance to hear from people who don't fall into those kind of buckets of those groups. And that was the most significant thing for me about those new respondents. And so this is going to make the research that you're doing, it's not just that you've got a larger group to interview and get results from, so the variety of where the information is coming from is going to enrich the results that you'll be looking at. Yeah, because the experience of mask making, like the pussy hats, is that we're all engaged in doing something very similar. And we might even be organized, a lot of groups are organized in a similar way, although there's a lot, you know, some diversity there, but there's some templates that definitely people like look to the group and said, that works, I'm gonna use it for my group, right? Yeah. So the activity and the crisis we're responding to is quite uniform, but the life experience that people bring to that moment is so incredibly varied. And it's the interaction between those two things that creates the meanings that people feel so deeply and what I, that's what I want to record. So the more places I can hear people from, the more different experiences they've had because of where they've lived or what they do, the kind of work they do, their rural or urban setting, yep. their community, their sexuality, whatever it is, right? The more I can hear about those different journeys, the more I can get a broader sense, we can all have a broader sense of how this common condition interacts 
with different lives to create meaning. If I had all 65-year-old white women who live in the suburbs, mm -hmm. and there's plenty of them yeah. in my survey, you still have some really fascinating differences. But imagine how much richer it is when you can have queer people who are in their early 30s and who work in the Bay Area. Yeah. Right? Then, then you've got just the possibility of all kinds of new things that you couldn't predict ahead of time. And that's the super fun thing about doing this research. When you talk to somebody and they tell you what's significant to them, you can't know that ahead of time. And so you kind of have to shut up and let them tell their story and let them come to what's important to them rather than you like, I've got a set of questions and, you know, here's what's important to me. What do you have that'll fit in here, right? Instead, you open up very broadly and you allow people to talk about what's important to them. And a lot of it is quite unpredictable and nothing I could have known ahead of time. So the results of the survey and the research that you're doing is going to be a really useful piece of work. What I'm trying to say is how important what you're doing is. Well, yes, thank you for that. I, I hear that from a lot of my participants, which is very gratifying. And of course, I wouldn't be doing it for so long and um, at such an investment of time, mm. if I didn't think it was important, listen, I have 10 years left in my career. <laughs> I'm fully promoted. I've got nowhere to go. I'm not interested in like becoming a superstar. I'm not at that stage of my career. Yeah. What I do have is the freedom to follow these research implications toward something that I think would be a loss if it weren't captured. Exactly. We don't want to lose this point in time on what's happened. And you're the one who's pulling it together for us. Yes. I don't think I'm the only one in this case. I got to be careful. The pussy hats, I have not seen anyone who has done similar, something similar to what I did. But I do know there are other people talking to mask makers, oftentimes mm -hmm. in a more focused way. I, I was a research subject for one of those people who wanted to think about folk engineering. That is like taking mask pattern and adapting it, engineering new solutions to problems. And so I imagine that there are a lot of people pursuing similar, perhaps more focused projects than mine. And so the mask makers are going to be quite well presented in the, in the research. That's great. It's good to hear that there are different ways that you can look at this phenomenon. And at least you've done this two times and this one is the huge one at the moment. We don't know what's going to happen in the, in the future, right? I don't want to do this in another four years. I would like this to be the last yeah. time that skill is called upon. But on the other hand, that's a lie because <laughs> to have a purpose during this time, to have something that's really does, you know, I think it's important, but I also know it's important to the people I talk to. It's very important to them that they are heard and recognized as being a part of a historical moment as doing something significant, that somebody cares about what they thought about it. Mm -hmm. That gift that the researcher can give back to the subject of, of interest and validation to a certain degree, that's super important work to be doing. And so, plus, Maria, the other thing that I was thinking when I first got into this interviewing as a form of research back in 2013 was, I'm a terrible listener. You ask my husband, I interrupt, I substitute my own thoughts for the mm -hmm. people who are talking to me, yeah. and I wanted to learn to listen better. 
And I can say that I have become a much, much better listener because of this research. And so the wonderful thing about doing interviewing like this is yeah. you can't do anything else while you're doing it. You have to like just be completely present to the conversation. And that's been a great discipline for me and to meet fascinating, almost uniformly lovely people, but all fascinating. Yeah. Meet hundreds of them in the course of doing this research is I will miss it when it's over, even though I won't miss sort of, you know, <laughs> coming back to the office late at night uh, to do a, uh, an interview or on the weekend or whatever it is. Yeah. And with the interviewing process, how is that impacting your day-to-day life? In the summer, it was quite simple. Over the summer break, I did five interviews a day. That's a lot of listening. 30 and 45 and sometimes an hour each. And it was wonderful because during the time of pandemic and quarantine, I had a project and not just a hobby project. I had a, a significant, meaningful thing to do. The university has started back up. I'm doing up to three a day fitting now in amongst my classes and other responsibilities. Mm. And I am experiencing how much that is. Mm. But having done it all summer long, it's a, a very nice, routinized process to prepare for them. It doesn't take a lot of energy and it provides this wonderful break in the middle of my day when it's like, I can't worry about the, the grading or the prep. I've got to sit down and listen to a person now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like having a little meditation in the middle of the day. So I do enjoy it, but it is different to fit it in amongst a busy schedule. Wow. Thank you for undertaking this study and for making sure that people who are committed to providing you with their view and what they've gone through for your study. Thank you for doing that. I'm only saying that oh. because it actually does mean a lot to people who have gone down that path. I know that this study is about, you know, what it is you're doing with research, but you're right. It does mean something to the people who are giving you their time. And what I would like to do is to write a book that put the, that puts the uh, pussy hat research and the mask research at the beginning and end of these four years of the uh, Trump term, Mm -hmm. because it is very striking that we start and end with these massive distributed hand-making movements. And I think there's a great book in that, but I would, this is the part I don't know if I can pull off. When I wrote the Prayer Shawl book, it's an academic monograph, priced for libraries to buy. I think it's accessible for a reader, but it's not priced for a reader. It's not meant for a general audience as far as the publisher is concerned. I would like this book to be different. I would really like this book to be accessible to the hundreds of people who've given me their stories. And that means a different kind of publishing. Mm. Um, it does, doesn't it? I know how to write in a popular level. We were, you know, talking about that I do pop culture criticism. So I know how to write for an audience of hundreds of thousands of people who would read my Breaking Bad recaps. You know, the, you yeah. know maybe half, half a million people some days for some episodes. So I know how to write for a large audience. I've written a popular theology book. I know how to, I know how to write pitch, pitch to a, a general audience. What I don't know is how to get a book deal <laughs> of that kind. Um, how how to, um, to pitch such a book. It might require getting an agent. I don't know what it's going to take. So that will be a whole new adventure to try to write a general, a trade book instead of an academic book. But that's what I'd like to do. And I hope that you get there too. That'd be great. I'll need some help. <laughs> I'll need people who know how to do it.
you need so much help in doing a thing like this. My husband is a, a writer about TV and, and movies as well, and he is co-writing a book about Lost, the TV show Lost. Oh, wow. And that's coming out in a few years. So he is at the same time as me embarking on that. He has a, an agent and a book deal and an advance. He's way much farther down the, the road than I am. I'm still like just waiting for some magic agent person to show up and shepherd me through the process. But right now, luckily, I don't have to think about it because every day is just three more interviews. And I'm focused on data collection until I get to that point where everybody's had a chance who originally wanted to. And that's quite a bit of work in itself. So it's enough for 2020. Listeners, what I'll have on the blog post for this podcast is the link to the survey and all the details that Donna has up her sleeve so that you can have a look at her background, what she's done, and get in contact with her. You know, the survey is going to remain open because there's still a chance to gather information from people whose mask making is on a bit of a different time frame than we've had here in the U.S. So that's another chance to get some very different life experiences and stories and interaction. Donna, are there any last words you want to give our listeners? One of the things that is important to me is that I'm a teacher. I actually, I have to brag on myself just a little bit. I won the teaching award at my university this year. So I've got teaching on the mind and I've got my undergraduates on the mind. That's, I teach undergraduates exclusively. And inquiry is really important to me, teaching them inquiry, teaching them how to, when they see a question that needs to be answered, how do we go about gathering what we need to answer that question? And I'm also an interdisciplinary teacher. So even though I'm a theologian, that move into gathering original data was facilitated for me because I teach in an interdisciplinary way all the time. I was never strictly in that religious studies field, even though that was my expertise. So one lesson that I want to draw from this for my students and maybe for your listeners as well Mm -hmm. is that we don't have to be limited by the skill set we have developed up to this point, that oftentimes the things that we are called upon to do require developing new skills. We may not do them perfectly the first time, but the acquisition of new skills means we can meet a new moment with perhaps just the right skill for the moment. And that to me is one of the big takeaways from the mask making that I hear over and over again which was, I had the skill, I had the tools, and suddenly the moment called on me to do something useful with it in a way that I never would have expected. And I feel that way about this research. The moment called on me to do something useful with this strange specialty I had developed of talking to mostly women Mm -hmm. about symbolically significant crisis fabric they make in their homes and give away. What an odd specialty, but here it is a worldwide phenomenon that needs to be studied. So that's kind of this existential way of looking at this moment that we equip ourselves haphazardly throughout life with these skills, but if we do so boldly, not letting what we were in the past limit what we can try to be in the future, Mm -hmm. who knows what moment will call out that particular collection of skills and I feel like that's kind of the story of my life right now but luckily it's also the story of a lot of the people I'm talking to 
and it's a wonderful feeling actually thank you so much it's my pleasure maria thank you for having me it's wonderful to meet you i'm so glad we got connected same here thank you so much donna and have a good day listeners have a lovely day today's episode of socialist tuesday was produced by me maria theoharis with permission of donna bowman sound by bensound.com you can subscribe to so organized style podcast spelt with an s not a z on apple google stitcher spotify iHeartRadio, Castbox, and libsyn our podcast distributor post any questions or podcast suggestions you have on our instagram account or on our facebook page we look forward to joining you in your sewing room next time stay safe everyone <laughs>